How do you respond when a storm is coming? It feels like a timely question. After all, September is the peak of storm season in Florida. There are any emotions that are attached to the word hurricane for you? Well, God has wired each of us a little differently. Maybe you're one of those hardened Floridians who doesn't even wince at the thought of a Category 3 or a smaller. It's a few palm fronds down in the yard. The weather people need to calm down. Or maybe you're the opposite. You're already annoyed that I even said the word. <laughs> you're thinking, quietest season on record, and you probably just ruined it trying to be cute with the sermon opening. This is why we can't have nice things. My family and I moved to Florida from Pennsylvania in 2009, and we came knowing that big storms were part of the price of admission to paradise. The first eight years we lived here were pretty quiet, pretty uneventful. But I'll never forget a very specific feeling in the pit of my stomach. It was Labor Day weekend 2017. And there was just starting to be some news about a large storm developing in the Atlantic called Irma. And it was about a week or more away from the United States, but I decided I should probably pick up a few more cases of water and one or two more things for my hurricane kit. And I think of myself as being on the cautious side, maybe a little ahead of the game, a little extra prepared. And you can imagine my surprise to discover that earlier that weekend, stores had already sold out of bottled water. Even the overpriced convenience store around the corner from my home that had pallets of water sitting outside the store for months now just had bare shelves. I wasn't alarmed, but I was a little surprised. But I'll never forget stopping by Home Depot on my last errand stop, and as I walked to the back of the store, they're on those large 30-foot-high platforms and all the racks for the lumber, the two-by-fours, the beams, the plywood, were several young men who in, let's say, desperation for plywood, which was all gone from the lower levels, they had climbed up top of the shelves and were slipping off sheets of plywood, passing them down to their friends below on the floor. And I got to be honest, I'd never seen anything like that. I thought that's awfully dangerous. And in the pit of my stomach, there was this little twinge of fear, of adrenaline. I thought, maybe this is going to be a big deal. Maybe I need to get ready. Our scripture passage this morning feels a lot like storm instructions. Words that are meant to help believers be ready for and respond for what's ahead. And the passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read it. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, many of you are well familiar with these verses, but I think the audience and the context are especially important to unpack this morning. The letter of 1 Peter, it's written to outsiders in a couple of different ways. 1 Peter's audience is exiled. It's an exiled and scattered church. Verse 1 is addressed to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. His readers, they were on the outer reaches of the known world in Asia Minor, and they were in cities and regions which were not their own. They were also likely Gentiles, although there is some debate over this, meaning they were outside the Jewish faith. In chapter 2, verse 10, he writes, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. And in chapter 4, verse 3, he says that they've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So additionally, these are spiritual outsiders who now have been brought in to a different way of life and a different spiritual family. And in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter addresses them as aliens and strangers in the world, which is likely both a reality of their geographic exile, but also a spiritual metaphor. Because of their faith in Jesus, these outsiders were also living on an earth which is no longer their ultimate home. They've been made for another world, and Peter is teaching them not to belong to this one, not to fall in love with this life and its passions. Now, why is this important? Well, in many ways, we can relate, can't we? We too are aliens and strangers in this world, and because of our heavenly home, we're really just meant to be passing through. We're also increasingly becoming outsiders in our own culture and our own country. For most of your lives and my life, Christian faith has been considered mainstream and respected. But we're also entering a time, I believe, when it's becoming regarded with skepticism and even open hostility. Peter's first words, the end of all things is near. We kind of have to deal with the premise before we can get to the instructions. Is the end of all things near? After all, Peter wrote these words 2,000 years ago. How near could it have been? Well, the Alliance uses the word imminent when it describes the return of Christ. They believe everything in the scriptures have been accomplished that needs to be accomplished. There's nothing left to inhibit Christ's return. But we've also not been given a date or a time on which to expect him. When Jesus taught about his return, he even says, I don't know when I'm coming back. Therefore, live as if I could always come back. Tim Keller explains imminence with a funny story. It's about his family running a little late for church. 
he and one of his sons are ready and waiting down in the car and waiting the rest of his family to come down and climb in. And it's one of those beautiful fall days up north. And his son says, Dad, it's so nice out. Why don't you take a quick spin around the park here? We can look at all the trees and the leaves. And Keller replies, yeah, but mommy is coming down any minute, any minute. Well, after 10 minutes had passed, (laughs) his son points out, they could have easily been around the park three times by now. In other words, dad, you're you were wrong 10 minutes ago when, mommy, when you said that mommy could be here any minute. And the answer is no, he wasn't. And some of you wise fathers and husbands understand. In hindsight, mommy didn't come in the first minute or the second minute or the third minute. But because mommy could always show at any time and to know that if he's on his way around the park when she does show, he's in tremendous trouble. <laughs> that means that at every minute it was true that the end was near. When Peter said the end was near, he was right. And when we say now, 2,000 years later, that the end is near, we are right. Because Jesus says that we must live as if he could return at any time. And the reason a lot of Alliance folks get so passionate about the imminent return is that it gives a lot of fuel, a lot of motivation to live godly lives and to share the good news throughout the world. But as we approach this specific passage, there's also some good reason to believe that Peter was not just referring to the return of Christ, but to something else. Here's how the case goes. Peter knew better than to think that he knew when Christ would return specifically. After all, he was with Jesus in the account of Acts when the apostles asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus replies, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set. Jesus said in Matthew and Mark's gospel that even the Son of God doesn't know the day or the hour of his return, only the Father. And secondly, Jesus had told Peter that he'd live out to see his older years in a passage in John 21, verse 18. Here's what he says. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. (laughs) Can I just say, probably not the word that Peter was hoping for. (laughs) Not something you write in someone's retirement card. But the point is, Peter knows he's going to get old. He knows there are things that still need to take place before Jesus' return. So instead, you could make a case that Peter is pointing to Jesus' warning about the end of the age that he talks about in Luke 21. In this chapter, Jesus describes the future demolition of the temple, saying not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus warns of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And these sound like the events that are to come in AD 70. But there's also a cue or a sign that must come before. And it's in verse 12. Jesus says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. And I think that persecution was the sign that Peter was beginning to witness in front of him. It was just the first part of a much larger storm that faced 
Peter and his believers and followers. The writing of 1 Peter is usually dated anywhere from 60 to 64 AD, putting it very close to the burning of Rome, which will destroy much of the city and which Emperor Nero will blame on Christians, beginning a severe persecution. And in just the next few years will come the arrest and the execution of Peter himself, and his followers will see that fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as Jesus predicted. Many more believers will be scattered across the known world, and I think Peter is writing these words to believers to prepare them for the coming storm. This morning, I want to unpack Peter's instructions one by one, and although he had a specific audience, we too feel that tension of being in the world and yet not of it. And we too are entering a time of increasing hostility and resistance to the faith. I'm certain you look out with concern at the world that your grandchildren are inheriting, so vastly different than the one that you grew up with. And honestly, I have the same concerns uh, for my own two school-aged children. So how do we live in light of the clouds that have gathered? Well, I think you'll be encouraged by Peter's words. Let's dive in. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. I think it'd be impossible for Peter to write these words and in his mind not be taken back to the memory of that last night with Jesus. Being invited to follow Jesus and to pray in the garden, yet being unable to stay awake and Jesus rousing him and seeing his master troubled and sweating, hearing him plead, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And then turning specifically to Peter and saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In the garden, the end was near for Jesus' earthly life and he was likely already experiencing the agony of his separation from God the Father. But in that moment of unimaginable trouble, Jesus demonstrates that prayer is the Christian's response. Peter knew all too well his propensity towards fight or flight. But Jesus shows him something very different. Jesus looks sober-mindedly into the trouble. And he prays that God might help him stand the test. An older and now wiser Peter invites believers to do the same in their present troubles. And just a side note, isn't it remarkable that Jesus doesn't want to be alone in the garden? If Jesus needed loved ones to be close in a crisis, why do we who are spiritual ever think that we don't need others or that we should carry it alone? I'm reminded, as Pastor Don shared, on this day, particularly of the trauma and fear from September 11th, 2001, collectively our nation saw an evil and a horror unlike any we had ever seen. Fear and uncertainty were appropriate emotions. But how did people respond in the days following? Well, certainly we saw heroes, didn't we? 
And do you remember how many instinctively gathered together in churches to pray and to not be alone? Peter continues, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's believed that Peter is referencing Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. What a remarkable teaching this is. Another version translates, translates it, stay fervent in love for one another. The word deeply or fervently here in Greek literally means strained. It's used of athletes straining to reach the tape or clear the bar. And if there's ever a time to stretch our love for one another to the limit, it's in a storm, it's in the end times. Peter's words put the focus on the effect of our love, that our love would enable fellowship and unity in spite of sins, a glue, if you will, that holds strong when there are inevitable cracks. Here at the Village Church, the staff use a strengths and personality test called SDI to improve their work as a team. And when I first came to Shell Point, they graciously invited me to participate. And the inventory puts a dot on a spectrum where each person's natural motives and motivation come from when things are good when they're in their happy place. And then with the arrow, it shows how we respond under stress. And the church staff uses this tool to better understand what's going on inside of each team member, what they need both in the everyday, but especially when we're in a crisis. This passage in 1 Peter is saying a very similar thing that the love that we have for each other needs to reach beyond the divides of sin and self, especially in a storm. Love forgives. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And remember, love doesn't ignore or diminish sin. This isn't a sweeping of things under the rug. I can't truly love a brother or sister and not have hard conversations. Sometimes God needs us to hold up a mirror. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I don't want to overstate this, but in the decades when Christians have been in the cultural majority, when the church has been considered a societal good when we as believers have been largely respected for those beliefs, the body of Christ can feel like a nicety. We can take unity for granted. But when we're opposed, when we're facing regular resistance, labeled as a hate group or despised for our political influence, the body of Christ becomes a necessity. We just won't stand without a strong body. And arguing amongst ourselves, taking sides over political issues, much less arguing and being divided over finer points of theology, it's a luxury, frankly, that we cannot afford any longer. Peter builds on his teaching on love by saying, 
offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this is just a practical application, an extension of love each other deeply. The Greek word for hospitality literally means love of strangers. And this is a type of love that widens the circle, right? We, we all have people that we know, that we love, the ones we get along with, the ones we check in on. And Peter says, love your circle deeply. But his second instruction is, widen the circle. These were already people who were considered outsiders, but it's just human nature to love those we love and that who love us. Peter says, keep reaching out. There's always more room in the circle. And as a parent of two children, I love the addition of without grumbling. Isn't that just the kicker? I bet you've received or at least seen a reluctant forced apology before, right? Our kids are 12 and 9, and they're awesome. And we love them to bits. But when we as parents make the mistake of ordering our kids to apologize before they've had time to cool off or to think about what they've done, when in their heart they're still angry and really don't want to, oh, the results are cringeworthy. You might get the word sorry, but it's just dripping with insincerity or disdain or maybe an eye roll. God is far more concerned about our hearts than the external motions or actions. And this call of Peter to genuine hospitality, it's where we truly want the best for another person. It's the kind that is often on display in this community of Shell Point. But how can we practice that kind of circle-widening love when caring for our familiar favorites feels so much more natural? Well, we can do it as Christ's own deep love is allowed to penetrate into our hearts and our lives. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. But the inverse is so true. Loved people love people. Paul said that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and the love that we've received from Jesus displayed in his work on the cross, totally undeserved, covering over every one of our innumerable sins. It is the bond greater than all that would divide us. Finally, Peter gives this beautiful outworking and ministry application. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Now, these are just two beautiful examples that Peter gives of the larger catalog of spiritual gifts explained in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. When I was a youth pastor, I loved teaching about the spiritual gifts because it was an excuse to bring out my collection of Mr. Potato Head toys. Mr. Potato Head needs all his parts, right? And likewise, the body of Christ needs all of its members, you, to be complete. None receiving special honor, over the other, but I don't need to belabor the point of the spiritual gifts. You know that well. 
But what's easy to overlook, particularly when we're tired or discouraged or dealing with health issues, is our importance to the body. We can't outsource our role to other seemingly more gifted members. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of body. And none of us know exactly how long we have on this side of eternity, but while you and I draw breath, God has a purpose and a calling on us. The people that God has put in your path and in our relational world, our family, our friends, our neighbors, those who care for us and serve us, those are the ones who God would have us to encourage and to point to Jesus. But Peter reminds us that those gifts can't be used just in our own strength and our own wisdom. Quite frankly, there are conversations that you and I need to be having with a culture that is increasingly skeptical of religious faith, particularly Christianity. And I'm pretty sure I don't have all the right words for them. We don't always have the formula for breaking through to our loved ones and our friends who have thus far been untouched by the good news. I don't have sharp and witty apologetical comebacks or the intellect to stand toe-to-toe with our greatest critics. So I need the very words of God. I need him living through me. Alliance founder A.B. Simpson describes it this way. He, meaning Christ, actually comes into our being and becomes the source and strength of our very life, reliving his own life in us. You see, that takes the burden for our health or lack thereof, our energy level or lack thereof, and it puts it on God, our healer and our sustainer. This is exactly what Simpson did when he was dealing with a debilitating health condition. He prayed that God would live his life and his resurrection power through his body, and Simpson experienced a divine healing that sustained him until the end of his days. Christ as healer became a central tenet of Alliance theology because we believe that Christ wants to live his life through us. When each of us commit to that personally, friends, the body becomes stronger and we are able to stand in spite of the storm. The end result of Jesus living through each of us, Peter writes, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of the storm. And because of grace, we welcome the return of Christ. But while we wait, let's be sober-minded and alert. My kids and your kids, they need parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who are helping us be ready and prepared for the days and the years ahead. I want God's word to speak for itself, and I want to be careful not to jam it carelessly into our specific context but I also just want to share my heart and a personal application of this word. I've been blessed with an incredible opportunity to minister to the men and women who work at Shell Point. 
But I also feel an increasingly uh, great burden and responsibility to help steward and safeguard the mission and spiritual values of this really special community. I try to look at Shell Point not only in terms of this week or this year, but in 10 years from now and, and 30 years from now. What do we need to be doing right now to ensure that our staff and leadership are living out and passing on our mission and values to the future leaders to come? How do we make sure that we're caring for our current and future employees with a love that covers over the many things that would threaten to divide us? The beauty of this passage is that there's a place to go with those worries. I can take that to God in prayer. And in the place of anxiety, he gives me rocket fuel to come to work each day and to love deeply, to offer hospitality to the people that God puts in my path, to ask him to speak his words and to lend me his strength. And friends, I don't want to do it alone. Some of you wake up with a very similar passion. We're on the same team. You're loving your circle. You're reaching out to your neighbors and to the employees that serve you. You're committed to prayer. You're lifting up your family and, and really your whole spiritual family around the world. But this takes all of us. Shell Point needs the village church to be a white-hot vibrant spiritual community that loves deeply. It needs to be a church that's passionate about widening the circle, a place that not only looks to our own interests and preferences, but to the interests of those residents and neighbors who aren't even here yet. Our instructions are clear for our families, for our friends, for our community, for the body of Christ. Lean in. Be clear-minded and in prayer. Love deeply. Reach out. As long as you draw breath, use your gifts for the glory of God. And we'll do it with his words and power and strength sustaining us. The end is near. So let's roll. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your words this morning. We know that in and of ourselves, we would be wholly inadequate to the calling on which you've placed on our lives. And yet, God, we pray that you would fill us today. Give us new passion. Commit us to strengthen and sustain the body. Allow for the anxiety that comes from the storms around us, from the news that we see on TV, to keep us sober-minded, to keep us committed in prayer. And we pray that you would give us your words and your strength to carry these things out. God, we're thankful to be yours, thankful to be called to a mission until you call us home. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.